This is The Legal Impact, the weekly show presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD and graduate programs, learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. I'm your host, AJ Kirsten, and today I'm joined by Professor John Graby, Director of the Warren B. Rudman Center for Justice, Leadership, and Public Service. Learn more about the center at law.unh.edu slash Rudman. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks. Thanks for having me, AJ. So in the wake of COVID-19, abortion rulings, cultural takeover of social media, and algorithmic everything, mm-hmm. uh, quote, civil liberties, end quote, are, of the citizenry are always brought up but with seemingly shifting definitions. It, John, at the, the, I want to dive into this uh, today in the episode, but to, as a baseline, how would you define civil liberties if you just had to like, put it in a dictionary? Well, you know, I, I mean, technically, our civil liberties uh, are the liberty to do anything that is not uh, constitutionally regulated, basically. Um, so, you know, there, I like to talk about the term, I, you know, the Constitution refers in two different places to privileges and immunities. Um, privileges uh, are, um, you know, um, an entitlement uh, under law uh, to do something. So, you know, one has the privilege of seeking a driver's license and obtaining a driver's license and then driving on the road. You know, uh, an immunity is a freedom from something in- involving the government. Um, in constitutional law, um, what we learn, uh, the way in which the, the Supreme Court has sort of divided things up, if you will, um, is first to, to draw a distinction between our fundamental liberties, our fundamental rights, um, and then all of the other rights that we have. Okay, so um, an easy example of this. Um, you could claim, if you wanted to, I suppose, if you wanted to throw your money away, <laughs> you could claim that you have uh, a right an inherent right to drive as fast as you want. Um, you're a good driver, you know, and it's not for the state to be telling you to limit yourself to 30 miles an hour on Washington Street. Okay. Um, now, true, that is a liberty. Okay. You have the liberty to drive, but that's not a specially recognized liberty. Okay. And, you know, that's that funds falls into the category of run of the mill freedoms uh, that the state. Uh, it can regulate um, and all the state needs to be able to do it by the state. I just mean any level of government. Um, all the state needs to be do do is to show that it has some rational purpose for regulating it and that the rule that it comes up with is is rationally related to that purpose. Um, and it would point to safety in the roads um, and any court in the country would throw out a claim um, saying, you know, you're violating my rights. We do, however, have rights that are deemed to be fundamental. Um, And you can think of those as more specially protected rights, rights that sort of shift the analysis from a presumption that the state can regulate, which is the presumption that applies, you know, with respect to most liberties, most privileges and immunities, if you will. Um, But when we're talking about our fundamental rights, the, the burden shifts, okay? And it's up to the state to show that it has special reason to intrude upon those liberties. Now, it's uncontroversial that our fundamental rights are those that are explicitly mentioned in the Constitution. So our right to free speech, our right to freely exercise religion, Second Amendment rights, Fourth Amendment right to be free from search and seizure. Most of them are found in the Bill of Rights, but there are other fundamental rights located elsewhere in the Constitution as well. 
Um, so for those rights, the government needs to have a very, very strong reason to intrude upon them. And when it intrudes upon them, it has to intrude upon them to the, the minimal degree necessary to accomplish some what we call compelling purpose. Okay. Um, everything else, though, okay, that's left over um, falls into this residual category of non-fundamental rights. And you know, that's actually a little bit, that's a little bit of an oversimplification, too, because there's some rights that are kind of specially protected, but yeah. not fundamental to as the case law is developed. So, there, yeah, there's a lot of gray areas when it comes to various subjects like like driving is like a low hanging fruit one, like where we it's you're allowed to go try and get a license. But yeah, you can't drive uh, 50 miles an hour up Washington Street here because yeah. there's inherent danger to other people and yourself. And I feel like it's I, I, this isn't a health law discussion. I just want to put that in the onset before I proceed with this next question. Is sure. COVID nineteen is a very interesting case study when it comes to it because um, I'm a millennial that lives online. I interact with a lot of people on all sides of the political spectrum, and I've right. seen arguments of infringements on both sides when it comes to a. For the more libertarian-leaning crowd, they think the personal liberty of not being forced to get a vaccine or you're telling the, an employer that they have to make you get a vaccine if you want to work there. And on the other side, primarily on the left, you see the, I saw this discussion a lot from coming out of Australia with their very different take on handling of the virus is I have a it's my you're infringing on my civil liberties by not making them get it, get the vaccine because I'm now in danger because of them not taking this step. Yeah. I mean, it's I mean, how how do we look at this? Yeah, no, it's it, it, it becomes more complicated because it's very easy to blend all this together. You can have an argument about what your level civil liberties should be. You know, you can we could disagree with um, what the Supreme Court has said, for example. I'm look, you know, I, I come at this as a constitutional law professor. Right. right. So, um, you know, it's uncontroversial that if it's listed in the Constitution, it's a specially protected right where it starts to become more controversial is when the Supreme Court identifies other rights that are not textually listed in the Constitution as fundamental or specially protected as it is done. That's abortion, for example, right? Yes. I mean, abortion is not mentioned in the Constitution anywhere. And so we get into disagreements about whether and to what extent other rights not mentioned in the Constitution ought to be deemed fundamental. Now, there is this thing called the Ninth Amendment that actually says the listing in this constitution of certain rights should not be understood to disparage other rights retained by the people. So the Ninth Amendment seems to say, don't think this is an exhaustive list. Don't think that this is a complete list. And so what that opens the door to, of course, is conversations about what else, what else should be treated as a fundamental right. You mentioned the, you know, the vaccination issue, and that's really, really interesting because that introduces an additional layer of complexity, which is, well, if we do allow government to intrude upon a right, um, what level of government is permitted right. to do so? You know, we get into the federalism debate. All right. So um, 1905 Supreme Court upheld, and this was a very conservative libertarian Supreme Court in 1905, but it upheld the right of political entities uh, to require vaccinations. So it was in the in the midst of a smallpox. Uh, it's a case is called Jacobson. It was the in the midst of a smallpox outbreak at this, the city of Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, required that people either become vaccinated or impose penal consequences on them. Um, and the Supreme Court said, that's not a problem. Um, 
you know, sort of making the argument uh, that Australia is making. Hmm. Um, you know, what's what we're talking about now, at least in sort of the mainstream conversation, though, is so assuming that's still good law, um, it, you know, no court has challenged that. It's been the law for over 100 years. The question now becomes, OK, um, well, we do allow vaccination orders to be issued by local government, by state government. Should the federal government be permitted to de facto um, uh, impose vaccination orders? So it's really interesting. You know, at the Supreme Court last week, there were arguments about two of the Biden administration's uh, orders that are seeking to require vaccination. One uh, for health uh, healthcare workers who work at facilities that receive federal funds, and the others, the other at large employers, and through OSHA, saying that it's a workplace safety issue. Um, and I think sometimes the mainstream media gets confused and, and thinks that the issue in those cases is whether there's an individual constitutional right to say no to a vaccine. But that's not the issue that's posed in those cases. The issue that's posed in those cases um, is whether the federal government, you know, what role the federal government should have. And it's also a separation of powers question. Should this be something coming from Congress or is this something that can be done through the administrative process as the Biden administration has sought to do it, because obviously you're, you're not going to get Congress to sign off on, on anything like this right now. Um, so there's just all these layers of complexity that come in and I think cloud conversations. And it's very easy for one person to be talking about, I think I have an inherent right to say no and somebody else to be coming back and saying, you know, you don't have a legal right to say no. And that's not, you're not like meeting each other on, on, on each other's terms when you're having that conversation. And even also happening at the same time as all this with regards to the federalism discussion liberties is uh, elections have been brought up. The Congress has been trying to get an election bill put through that in, in, in theory will take uh, the the decision making of many states for what they want to do for election enforcement or allowing ballots and such to be put at the federal level. And I feel like that's been kind of forgotten by a lot of them. Once again, the mainstream media kind of having a specific way they want to look at it is forgetting like a majority of the Republicans that are against this bill are saying like, no, the state should be responsible for it. Yeah. And this, by the way, this these measures would only pertain to federal elections because the Constitution does actually give Congress the power to step in. And, and, and to you know, preempt the states with respect to federal elections. So that's, that's textually in the constitution actually. Um, but um, you know, states would still have the power, you know, the residual power to run elections for state office mm -hmm. uh, though, for example. But it's, you're right, it's another, it's another example of federalism. Um, here it's not so much the question of constitutional power, although, some of the measures that have been discussed by Congress, uh, like, like, you know, uh, pre-clearance requirements, for example, um, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 for, for most of its existence had pre-clearance requirements that applied to states uh, where, you know, there was historical evidence of an effort to interfere with the right to vote, especially by, by people of color. Um, those preclearance requirements were, were, were done away with by the Supreme Court about eight, eight, seven or eight years ago. Um, Congress is trying to restore those. That, those, I think, would raise, if, if Congress were to do that, I think those would raise issues, constitutional issues of federalism. But, but it's basically accepted that Congress does have the power 
um, to step in and to regulate local elections to protect the, you know, if it perceives a need to protect the integrity of elections for federal office, if it, it feels like, you know, the states or, or localities are, are going rogue in some way. Let's continue tiptoeing down the uh, political uh, minefield here sure. and move over to abortion. <laughs> sure, sure. The, it's, it, this has been, this is definitely, once again, a civil liberties discussion when it comes to, like, I was shocked the first time I really heard about, with regards to Roe, that it really came down to a privacy perspective for the mother of, in, in, in these, in the case of abortion. Uh, but a lot of people on the other side of the aisle, once again, are saying it's the civil liberty of the fetus. And where does that come into play during the time frame? I mean, right. do you, how do you feel like that's kind of over time changed? or um, affected the debate on civil liberty in, in our country? Well, you know, I mean, that that's such a unique, abortion is really is. sui generis because, you know, um, you have you have the two interests, you know, um, and you have, you know, you're, at least you have people believing that, that they're, you know, there are people who disagree right. that, with that, you know, but clearly there's, a, there's an interest in bodily autonomy and, dis, and decision-making that's implicated. Uh, and many would say there's also the interests, um, you know, of, of the, the, you know, the, the, the constitutional rights of the fetus. Um, it's, um, you know, the way in which the issue had been, now I wouldn't say resolved because it's been, you it's know, not resolved. The way it's been contested <laughs> since it came down, right? But um, a line was drawn um, at approximately the end of the second semester, um, which is, which corresponds with viability. Um, a term that means that, it, at least in theory, the fetus could live outside the womb um, at that point in time. And even under Roe versus Wade, once you got past viability, um, it was understood that the state had an interest in regulating to preserve fetal life, so long as it made exceptions for, you know, the, the life or health of the mother, if it, you know, if the pregnancy became dangerous towards the end of it. Um, that viability line, though, um, you know, is the argument is by those who oppose abortion that that's arbitrary, you know, um, like that's okay, you pick that out. And, you know, maybe, maybe lots of people would agree that that's significant. But if the state has an interest after viability, why doesn't it have an interest before viability, you know, is the argument from those um, who would seek greater regulatory power for the state. And then there are those on the other side who say, look, it, it's, uh, it, it's my body. Um, and why should I lose the right to make decisions, you know, post viability, um, you know, if, if, uh, and so round and round we go, you know, um, <clears throat> it's, um, it's pretty clear reading the tea leaves that, that the Supreme Court is going to change the legal landscape. Um, uh, you know, I think, uh, I, I think, whereas I think a year ago, people thought that the court might go after Roe v. Wade, um, you know, by, you know, death by a thousand cuts. Um, I think now, uh, based on the, you know, the, 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 the recent arguments at the Supreme Court, the sense is that there are likely to be five votes to actually overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, uh, that would happen in an opinion handed down uh, later this year towards um, the end of the court's term, which typically winds up right around July 1st. Um, and the effect of that would be to return the issue to the states. Um, and you know, there are a number of states that have laws on the book already saying if Roe versus Wade is overturned, um, you know, we're going to we're going to basically outlaw abortion uh, in the states. And then we'll still have issues. You know, we'll have issues about do, does the constitutional calculus change if a state 
um, makes no exceptions for rape or incest, uh, or if a state makes no exceptions, you know, in circumstances where the life uh, or, you know, the, the, the serious health needs of the mother um, are, are impacted by a pregnancy, um, you know, uh, we'll just have to see what happens. But it's that that would be likely um, the, the consequence. Although, again, then, <clears throat> you know, again, numerically, a majority of people in the country um, support protection of abortion rights. Um, Conceivably, you know, after another election or something, if this became a national issue, Congress also could step in. Um, right. And it could that see- might actually be the kick in the butt to make Congress actually make a decision one way or another. That's right. But then the question also will be, can Congress constitutionally regulate in this area? Um, right. You know, would it be a regulation of interstate commerce um, if Congress were to step in, um, you know, which is, you know, the, the typical power that Congress relies on, you know, um, so again, it's it's a, it's an incredibly fraught area with all sorts of possibilities for um, for legal and constitutional issues to arise as we go forward. So we got about three minutes left. I mean, what do you see as like the future discussion on civil liberties being like the the main thing? I mean, is it digital privacy? I feel like that's been a big thing. Is it just we're just going to continue this kind of free for all if there's so many important things all on the table all at once? Yeah, I mean, it seems that we as a country are having a conversation about, you know, you know, what is what the what the freedom default should be in this nation? You know, is it is it really um, a freedom from is it really about just our negative freedoms or are we going to accept arguments like the argument being made in Australia um, that with with the challenges that we face, um, we need to take more of a community communitarian approach. You know, we you know we are an outlier uh, as a nation, for example, in not having um, you know with respect to our healthcare system. You know that that we still have so many people um, who fall through the cracks and are uninsured. You know, with climate change sort of bearing down upon us. There's there's not a whole lot that you can do at the town. I guess that's not that's a, I don't want to be cynical, but like you're not going to solve co- climate change by going to your going to town meeting. It's a global problem. <laughs> like yes. You know, even even working at the national level is inadequate. Got to kind of work at the world level. And so how you know as we do these things and we have people with radically different perspectives on what's appropriate, how are we going to draw balance? And are we going to be able to draw balance peacefully within our system? Are are, are we going to continue to have a win some, lose some constitutional system where, um, you know, we vote um, and sometimes the vote goes your way um, and you're happy and sometimes the vote doesn't go your way. And most often a a compromise emerges that nobody likes. Um, But it it seems as if there's reason to question whether people are going to accept results they don't like uh, in our system. Um, You know, we're we're seeing that play out right now in Washington with the January 6th commission uh, as we, you know, we continue to litigate, if you will. I mean, it's not a litigation in court, but we continue to to talk about the previous election uh, for president at at the federal level and and whether it was conducted with integrity or not. Um, And um, anyway, um, it's, you know, you throw a pandemic on top of it and uh, it's, it's really quite a time. 
Professor John Graby, director of the Warren B. Rudman Center for Justice, Leadership, and Public Service. Learn more about the center at law.unh.edu slash Rudman. Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Get the back episodes of the show at law.unh.edu slash podcast. <laughs>